Today's guest is Leslie Lupo. She has a degree in developmental psychology and she is an intuitive coach, as well as being a lecturer and a keynote speaker on her near-death experience. And today we are going to find out about her near-death experience. So Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored. All right. Well, let's jump right into it. Let's start on the day of your near-death experience and what happened. Well, I was working at a dude ranch. My husband owned a dude ranch and we worked there. Um, on this particular day, one of the cowboys hadn't come in and I jumped in the program to help because I know how to ride and I know how to do a lot of things with horses. So I jumped in there to help out and I took, I taught some classes. Um, I helped saddle, helped unsaddle, helped get the guests mounted. And at the end of the day, we were unsaddling. The herd is about 120 horses. And there was probably 80 or 90 down there we had unsaddled. And we had two more rides coming in. When um, I started to undo the singe of a horse we named Houdini because he could undo all the knots and gates, he did that. He flipped the gate latch over and took off for the hay barn with his saddle on. And by the time I could jump and close the gate, another horse had slipped out. So I looked at the clock and it was 10 to three. And I told the cowboys, I'll go down and get these two. And I grabbed a couple halters and ran down there. And I felt really lucky because the horses were standing right next to each other. They were, um, but it's all jammed. All I saw was a big wall of rumps because they're all eating after the end of the day. And so I tried to wiggle in between them. I figured, well, they're next to each other, so I can just put the halters on both of them at the same time. Yippee. But what happened was, as I'm trying to wiggle between them, I'm getting caught in the saddles that are pressing really hard. It wasn't slick hair. It was the saddles. So I got up a ways, and I turned around, and I grabbed onto the saddles, and I started trying to push my way backwards up to their heads, and right then, before anything happened, all of a sudden, my if you asked me at the time what just jumped out of you, I would have said my mind, but now I know it was my soul, jumped out of my body and was standing 10 feet away. I didn't really feel any movement. It was just I was here, and then all of a sudden I'm over there watching me struggling and really, you know, trying to get through these horses and then all of a sudden one of the horses shrieks and a stampede starts and all of the horses are running and I got spun around my arm went up to my shoulder in the um, stirrups and I started struggling to stay on my feet now I'm watching all of this and Leslie, I was <laughs> that me and that was Leslie is screaming and fighting to stay on my feet. And the horses, one horse that I was caught on, I'm kind of dragging and he's hitting me and kicking at me so that um, he can get away from whatever scared the other horse. And finally, he just crashed me into the hay barn itself, which is concrete and steel. And I just watched myself flop. I mean, the horse took another step 
and I just went flying and just laid in the manure and I watched it all. And yet the interesting thing was there was a sense of closure, like it was a circle being completed. I, the part of me that felt, felt nothing of the nervousness or the screaming. If people had seen that, they would have said, yes, she suffered horribly. But I didn't feel anything. I watched it happen. And there was a normalcy about it. And I just felt such serenity and peacefulness. It was kind of like getting out of a, a, a body girdle that's four sizes too small. I felt like lighter, like like my cells had separated and I had this beautiful little breeze going through. And and I I just it was it was like wonderful. I felt loved, I felt happy, all of my senses were heightened. Um, and the first thing I thought was, this is it. This is what everyone is afraid of. I'm still here. I'm still thinking. And that was the first thing that hit me. The second thing was I looked and went, oh, I knew I was dead. I looked at my body. I knew I wasn't unconscious. I knew that it was like finito. And so I looked at myself and I thought, oh, am I a ghost? And I couldn't see through me. But I did notice this really nice kind of uh, deep blue light on the edge of me, like a little tiny rim of light. And right then I saw the other two um, cowboys were bringing in the last two rides down at the bottom gate. And I got very nostalgic. I thought, I know what they're going to do. They're going to come in. They come in, they close the gate, then they lock it. So many times I had done that so many years with the cowboys bringing them in. And then, you know, they turned and they saw me and they raced over to me. And one of the uh, guests jumped off his horse and turned me over and started to try to give me CPR. Um, and I kind of watched all this happening. And then all of a sudden, it started fading away. I was, it's like, it just kind of went into this really fog, but it was a bright fog. And I just felt like everything was moving around me. And there was some kind of light, they were triangles, I had no idea what they were, kind of three of them around me, making sure that all this moving stuff, I was kept in one place. And then all of a sudden, this forest started emerging. So there I am upstairs, and um, I looked at my hands again, and I looked like I was like really like college age, you know, or high school age. But I had big freckles, and my hair was very short. And I'm like, oh, why is I like long hair? And it was just, but as, as alert and aware that I felt on earth, when I was upstairs, I felt very groggy at first. And so I noticed a table with some people waiting for me. And when I went there, it wasn't so much like walking like we do here where you're it was like I looked and then I was a third of the way there. And then I was, you know, two. it was like it almost felt like these little screens dropping in that here I am. And then there I am. So it's not the same as linear. And 
most of the information that I was getting was um, like telepathic, but it was it was more than that. If I asked a question, several of the questions I asked when I was writing the book were like six or seven pages of information, but it's it was an instantaneous download. Now, whether I was learning it or I was remembering by her doing that, I don't know, but it was like instantaneously, I heard the whole message right away. And I was told I had a choice. I could stay up there or come back. Um, and so me being me, I had to ask, ask a lot of questions. And um, it turned out, you know, we took a little walk and I met some other beings there. And then I, it turned out that I decided to come back. We had another meeting with a smaller group. There was 11 at the first meeting plus me. And the next group, there were five plus me. And um, then I um, decided to come back and I came back. It, they put me in this area where there's wavy lines and I felt like I was being compressed like a sausage casing. You know, I was just being, and that was the only time I ever felt really uncomfortable while I was up there. And they stopped the um, transmission or whatever it was. And they also said, um, you don't have to go back because they were reminding me I have a choice. And I said, no, I will go back. And one of the soul group, his name is Rao. He leaned forward and he said, remember, every breath is precious. And that's the last thing I heard until I landed in my body. Now, while that was all going on, they were trying to resuscitate me on earth. And the doctor who was doing that kept looking, checking his watch. And after seven or eight minutes, he gave up. And um, apparently this is what was told to me. He said, um, she's gone, go get Bob. So one of the cowboys ran up to the main house um, there were all a couple of them had gone up there. They're trying to find him because the ranch is huge and you can be anywhere on the ranch, you know. And um, they had stopped trying to resuscitate me. And one of the cowboys told me later that my lips were as blue as my jeans. And after a couple of minutes, all of a sudden I sat up. And all I remember of landing was I remember feeling like I hit the ground and that was probably like a jolt that they witnessed because they saw me jolt and then all of a sudden I sat up but when I jolted and I looked up I opened my eyes and all I remember is there were two people here men and they were kneeling and there were two women there um, on my right in the back and they were standing and I could see the sky and a tree branch and then I just went out. And apparently I sat up and everyone kept saying, Leslie, Leslie, are you okay? And the doctor told them not to say anything. And they said to me, what's your name? And I said, uh, Leslie, I guess everyone's calling me Leslie. And he said, where are you? And I said, Chicago. He's like, no, um, how old are you? And I thought I was like 14. He goes, no. And then I went, 15? And he's like, no. And then by that time, Bob had come down. And they had me look at him and they said, do you know who he is? And I said, 
is he my father? Mm. So I was a little, you know, and then I passed out. You know, I I started to lay down when they said, you've got to go to the doctor. And I was like, no, no, I don't want to go to the doctor. And then all of a sudden I'm gone. I uh, went into a coma for a while. So um had fun in the hospital or not and mm-hmm. and had to come out and reinvent myself. All right. Let me backtrack with you a little bit. I find it very interesting that you popped out of your body before your actual injury when it just the when it yes. started to get dangerous. What do you think yes. about that and why do you think that happened? Well, that's an interesting question. When it happened, I remember thinking to myself, because by the time it settled, when I was really facing the fact I knew I was dead, a question also popped in my head. I thought to myself, I wonder if everyone has this experience where they pop out and before the body goes. And I had a guest come back. You know, I work also at Canyon Ranch. And I had a guest come. I do the lectures there. And she came back. She had seen my lecture. She went home. Her mother had a stroke. She was dying from the stroke. It was massive. But it took her a couple days. So she sat there, an only child, holding her mother's hand and talking to her. And then all of a sudden, she remembered me saying I had popped out of my body. Because her mother was suffering. No, they gave her pain medication. She would be twitching or moaning. And and she all of a sudden she said, Mom, I know you're not in the body. I know you're dancing around the room somewhere. And you can see me and you know now that I know you're not suffering. And all of a sudden she felt on the back of her head. She had big curly hair. And she felt like this on the back of her head. And her mother always did that to her. She always mussed her hair. Mm. And so, of course, she looks up and she goes, well, there's no vents around. And then she said, Mom, was that you? And it happened again. And by this time, she and I are holding hands sobbing with happiness because she said, thank you, thank you, thank you, because it helped me watch her body die, knowing that she, my mom, was not in it. Mm. So I've had a couple of people mention that to me that they also popped out before they died. But most of the people I've talked to were in surgery and they were knocked out already. So I don't know um, how many people have that experience or if they experience the physical pain of a a car crash or whatever. But I was so peaceful and there was something in me that just knew this is the way it's done. It's okay. It's like getting re- like coming home and taking off your jacket and throwing it on the bed. That's about the amount of drama that I was experiencing in my soul. Were you actually at a point where you were in pain, in pain though, when you did pop out? No, not at all. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel any of that. Mm-hmm. I was so shocked. I couldn't. I not only didn't feel any pain, I wasn't even frightened by what I was watching. It was just so much a part of the dance of life when you let go of your body. Maybe you were Um, physically struggling and that physical struggle just kind of jerked yourself out. Popped me up. Well, that's a possibility too. I don't, I don't, because I wasn't like 
really struggling. I was actually had them in my arms and I was just pushing back like that mm-hmm. with my arms straightening. But um, and it was definitely happened way before the drama and all the movement started. You know, what had happened was they had let the herd boss out. The head horse is the meanest one in the whole herd. And he walks down and he wants to eat. So he lays his ears back and he nips one of the horses so he can go right up to the trough. Mm -hmm. And the horse, you know, screamed a little and they bolted. Mm -hmm. And I got caught in that little stampede. Mm -hmm. You know, a horse. So um, it's an interesting, yeah. I was going to say. Horses are, you know, nice. Horses are still big animals. I've had one just move his foot and step on my foot one time. And he was just moving his foot. So I know that they're big animals. And I just kind of wonder, well, maybe subconsciously your body or your spirit or your soul just try to get out of the way or get out, you know, get out of danger. Right. You know, that's a good question. And I think it would um, benefit if people started remembering in their past life experience, if they did have any physical recollection of the car crash or the pain or anything like that. Because all I know is I was sitting there struggling and all of a sudden I'm sitting 10 or 12 feet away watching me struggle. And I thought, what? You know, I'm like, oh my I couldn't even think. I couldn't even think of a question. It was so shocking to me. And then I watched the drama and I didn't feel anything. I wasn't nervous. I didn't feel sad for her. I didn't feel any physical pain or discomfort. I just felt like serenity, you know, like, like at the end of the day, cup of tea. Uh, You mentioned you were interacting with beings. And then later in your interaction, you mentioned that they were your soul group. Can you elaborate yes. more on that? And how did you know that they were your soul group? Um, sometimes we have guides. We have like people that are much, much, much older than us. And they're like helping us. They're like teachers, you know, in your um, group. And then you have um, groups that are like in the same grade together. So this would be like going back upstairs and sitting with my classroom buddies. These were my, this was my group. And, um, and the, there was a book I read that really explained it. You know, everyone, when I've changed my life, all of a sudden, boom, 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 I'm meeting all these very deeply spiritual people. You know, I was an atheist when this happened. And all my social group and all my social life were at least agnostics. You know, we didn't have any real strong religious friends. Neither one of us had any interest in religion or spirit. I was very scientific. I just thought when you die, that's it. You know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And then I have this experience. And then I have to come back and make sense of it. So a bunch of people that I met along the journey after that turned out to be very spiritual and I would be given books. And there was one book I was given called journey of souls by um, Michael Newton. And he, he was hypnotizing people for past life recoveries. And this lady made this nonchalant comment about, well, yes, but I knew that when I picked that life, and he said, what do you mean? And she starts talking about upstairs, how we pick our lives, etc. And he's, 
asking her all these questions about what it's like upstairs and she's answering him. So then more and more people, as he's working with them in these deep hypnotic states, he would just say, by the way, do you remember where you go between lives? And they were going, oh yeah. And they'd start chattering and they were all the same. They were so similar. And he was, he wrote a book about it and someone had given me that book. And I have to tell you the first time I read that book, I was sobbing because Finally, I, I was given a book that made sense to me, that this was my realm. Um, I think there are many different realms and many, many, you know, infinite of different realms and levels of um, consciousness and whole different universes out there that we cannot see. And... Um, that was a book that really helped me understand my group. So my group were, the, my soul group are the people that you evolve with. It's like younger souls, um, firstborns. This was all based also on the theory of reincarnation. And the firstborns were people that were like picture baby playgroup to first grade, you know, or kindergarten. And then grade school is another school because they showed me at one point a bunch of different villages and they were showing me that that's how the progression is. The older souls come here and, you know, when you're an older soul, you'll go back into those younger villages and be a teacher, but you still have the same group, you know, and when you look at your birth family, you'll have a multitude of ages in there. And it might be all from the same string of villages. So you all have, um, you might be born with a couple of kindergartners and a PhD or two and a bunch of high schoolers as far as the evolution. And it's it's all about learning and growth. But you, it's when you go back upstairs, you go back to your soul group. And I guess you didn't know at the time that that was your soul group. You just were just interacting no. with beings and you didn't know... Did you see any religious beings or you felt like you met God or anybody or just talking to beings of light? I had the light beings. And then Rao and I, it was decided that I was too groggy to make the decision right then if I would go back to earth or if I would stay because I was given a choice. So Rao and I took a journey through the forest into a big field. And there was a beautiful waterfall. And he said, you love, there's a cave behind the waterfall. And he said, you, you love that cave. When you're up here, you go there a lot to meditate. And so it's funny because I love, I've always looked for caves behind waterfalls. And even when I was little, if I found one, I wouldn't, I would go in the cave and I wouldn't come out. You know, it was just, I think you're drawn to things that are very familiar to you. When I went in the cave, there was Jesus there. And we talked about forgiveness and self-forgiveness and how critical it is. And then he told me to rest. And I, I don't know if I napped or, I mean, it's hard to describe because I just closed my eyes. And then the next thing I opened and he was gone, I got up. I walked in towards this village that because Rao said, that's where we live. Go come up here when you're done. And I go into this huge, huge place with all these little tiny drawers from the floor to the ceiling. 
And it's a big, huge room. I mean, you could put two football fields in there. And um, I went over and I was looking in the drawers and there were scrolls and there were books and there were um, all these different ways of, of holding information. And then I, a woman came in and she was tall, twice as tall as me. And her name was, she told me her name. Now, when I saw Jesus, I didn't have to know his name. But whenever I was with my soul group, when I'd look at them, I'd telepathically know their name. Jesus, I knew his name. This woman was telling me her name, but it sounded more like a song. And I just said, I don't understand you. And she said, oh, on earth, I'm Saraswati. So I met with Jesus. I met with Saraswati. But before we got to the cave, and this is where I saw the other realms, I had this experience which I felt so much love. It's so hard to describe how much love you feel from everything you see. And you have dropped all that fight or flight reflex wiring from you. You're just pure love. And you feel this amazing love for everything you see, and you also feel that everything you see is sending you back the same level of love. But all of a sudden, I hit a new level, and I felt not just loved, but adored. And I looked up, and there was this, it looked like water. When you drop drops in it, there was this point that was pulsing, and then these ripples coming out from it. And there were also some, it, they looked like um, geometric patterns that were like um, kind of twirling around. And I, you could almost hear a song. And Rao had told me, you're not here yet. Because I told him a, once, I said, I feel like there's a veil and I can't really see everything or hear everything. He said, well, that's because you're not here yet. But I'm looking at the divine. I mean, I'm looking at God. I'm looking at the source, whatever word. And I was flabbergasted because when I was young, I was in a particular religion that told you that you had to adore God. And if you're lucky, God loves you back. And here I am being absolutely adored as I am with all my little quirks and things I still have to work on. Mm -hmm. And God's adoring me. And I felt that adoration back. And I also felt, I almost felt myself starting to rise like I could go and blend in with it. And um, and Ron just kind of took me by the shoulders because I felt I was floating into it. And, um, and then we talked about the other realms that I saw, you know, because I could see through the sky, it was a different color than our sky, and it was almost like patchy looking. But then I could see movement, and I said, is there something else up there? And so Rao said, yes, there's another realm, and there's another realm. And it, it, it looked like bubbles, you know, when you blow a bubble and you have a bunch of bubbles stacked. That's kind of what it looked like there was. I was in a bubble, and there were all sorts of other bubbles attached to us, and we could see Faintly, we could see that there was something else up there. And he said, we can go up there and we can go up and up and up, and then we can come back down. And we both laughed. Now, the worst part of this is everything up, make, when you're upstairs, everything they say makes perfect sense. And then you come back down here and you're thinking, 
what did he mean by that? We can go back up and we can come back down. What does that mean? You know, I have no idea. Um, which led me to a lot of religious and spiritual books, trying to figure out if anyone had ever talked about that before. And again, we talked, what I would come upon were people talking about other realms or other dimensions, you know, so I'm still, you know, trying to figure that one out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, two, everything makes perfect sense. Two questions here. One, you call it upstairs. And when you call it upstairs, do you, do you call that heaven? <laughs> Do you would you classify well, that as okay. heaven? I would classify that as heaven. Okay. But when I came back, don't forget I was an atheist and I was mm-hmm. raised Catholic and I had left the Catholic religion a long time before. And so I I wouldn't say heaven. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. me when I first came back. I I didn't call it upstairs. I mean you're upstairs, you're there, but I would call it upstairs. Because I couldn't say the word heaven because that was getting religious to me. And I was like being stubborn. Mm-hmm. So I just came to call it upstairs and it stuck. You know, it's just something I never stopped saying. But yes, I do think that that was heaven. But I don't think of heaven like a lot of people think of it. In fact, one of the things I got as, as a big hit was it almost seemed as if when I was transitioning from earth to heaven... I didn't rise up and float away. I felt like it's all around us, but on another plane. I mean, if you study science and you look at all the colors we can't see and all the sounds we can't hear and how um, there are little microbes that just go in and out. We're just like a puff of air to them. They're at a different frequency and they can just go right through us. And these little um, quarks and photons can go right through us. Um, it's more like physics. I like physics. I like quantum physics and quantum mechanics. And um, I like a lot of how they talk about what we really see. So in my mind, we could just literally be two feet away, you know, put your hand out and you're in heaven. It's right that close. It's not like something that's totally separate from us. Um, I loved how you said that you are free from fight or flight. And I find that fascinating. I never thought about that before because it makes sense that once you're free from the body, maybe you're free from all the neurochemical emotional reactions, you know, like fight or flight, your body's put, you know, you're free from adrenaline affecting you. If you had, you're free from caffeine affecting you, alcohol, whatever. It's kind of the same thing, but similar. You're free from all these neurochemical reactions. Would you say that was true? Oh, yeah. And that, yes, and the sense of it, the whole sense of um, fear, being afraid. I mean, here I am. I just watched myself die with beautiful equanimity and peaceful acceptance of it in a way that I can't imagine I would if I was still in my human body. I was fighting to live there Mm -hmm. and screaming. And I watched it with compassion, but detachment. And then when I was totally upstairs, that's one of the first things that really resonated with me is that I didn't, I was groggy. I wasn't as sharp as I was on earth. I felt groggy and I didn't know where I was and I wasn't afraid at all. And I wasn't worried and I didn't have any um, 
I didn't have any attachments. I wasn't competitive. I wasn't, um, it was just this total freedom from fear, totally, totally free from anything that is fear induced. Because humans come from one of two places, love or fear. And we jump back and forth all the time. But to be without that wiring, it was noticeable. It was mm -hmm. noticeable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me wonder. Without a body, you can't fear because maybe you don't have the, you know, when you frayed, you, you're neurochemically, you know, you produce something that you even feel it. And your heart mm -hmm. will start racing and you may shake and your pupils dilate and all this stuff is right. going on in your body. Right. So without it, maybe the only thing left is love. And that's why maybe it's so intense. I don't know. I'm just yeah. speculating. No, that's a, a very good, um, that's a very good point. At the end of every lecture I do, I try to, um, because a lot of spiritual pathways are telling you, you must release all fear. And I'm in the body right now. And my fear is a biochemical reflex. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be a motivational force like it's used in schools and parenting and, and, and jobs. But it is. it should be because if I'm out by my chicken pen and I'm accidentally standing six inches from a rattlesnake, I don't want to be, oh, how pretty he is. What a beautiful creature. Mm -hmm. I did this kangaroo jump like six feet in a split second backwards when I realized I was standing right next to a four and a half foot coiled up rattlesnake who was just sweet, sweetly looking at me. He wasn't even rattling. You know, it's like, maybe she'll go away. I did very quickly. Um, for me, I always say this, like picture a little chocolate truffle. That's my favorite candy. And that's the soul and that's love. Now picture the little plastic wrapper that's around that candy to keep it protected and safe. That's the human body and the fear reflexes. So when we have a negative reaction, if I get angry or if I get frightened or I think of something sarcastic to say, I just also have to recognize that's not me. I'm the chocolate. We have our identity is starting with the plastic wrapper. The fear is where we have to release the fear impulse. But I don't know that we can ever get rid of the fear because it's in our hard drive. But mm -hmm. if we stop giving it the driving, the, you know, the steering wheel, if we don't let it drive us, then we have the ability to say, okay, my first reflex is fear. That's the wrapper. That's not me. I'm love, mm -hmm. you know? And it we can, like, take off the roles we play and we're in our immortal soul. If we can release the roles we play. I mean, we get so identified with the roles we play, it's like our skin. And if we release the roles we play, then it's like our, I put this on. But I'm spirit. I'm immortal. Mm -hmm. I'm love. Mm -hmm. And my fear is will come up every once in a while to let me know that there's something wrong in what this person's saying, or there's a snake, or there's traffic, that kind of thing. It's, it's good to be aware of it, but not have it be the motivational force. It has been. I mean, yeah. we see it all the time on the news. And also, I mean... Homo sapiens, if you want to call us, or, you know, humans or whatever, 
I think since caveman or, you know, we don't even know how long humans have been around, but just the physical bodies have fear was a good thing because, you know, in thousands yeah. of years ago, if you saw a tiger in the woods, the, the fear was the appropriate response to run away. And that's made what, you know, yes. because you were going to die. So, and on some levels, fear was right. a good thing. So yeah. maybe that's part of the game is if you want. And as a biological reflex, it's great. But it shouldn't be, um, it controls us. And yeah. part of my return and what I've been teaching is to how to be aware of the fear motivation so that it doesn't, um, you know, make you change. Like, I didn't want to sit and look at the rattlesnake for a minute or two and decide if I should jump. I just looked down and went, boom, and went back. You know, I mean, I was just totally on the snake's like, bye, you know. And so we caught it and we released it, but um, miles away from anybody. But um, it was a healthy thing to do. It's just there's so many people that teach their children with fear and teach their religion with fear and um, yeah. teach in school in fear. It it makes people terrified of just being alive. And uh, it's just there's a whole new wave of new teaching with children and schooling. And they're finding that they they learn so much quicker and they have so much more creativity when they're not afraid to make a mistake and raise their hand and ask a silly question. Yeah. You know. Right. Makes sense. All right. Well, let's jump back into your story. So you came back, you were in a coma. What happened after you got out of your coma? Well, I was in the hospital. And the funny thing is this, when I first remember coming out of the the coma, and everything, and I was remembering, because the first few days, I wasn't recording anything. So I was talking and doing things, but I didn't say anything to any, I didn't remember anything. So I'd always ask the same questions. And after a few days, that faded, but I still didn't know I had total retrograde amnesia, I had no idea who I was. Mm. Um, people would tell you who you are. And that is like, so abnormal for people to come in and say your name is this you lived in morocco you went to school in albuquerque and you're just like frozen because it's scary for people to tell you who you are and you're kind of like okay whatever and yet there was that part of me that i all i completely remembered my near-death experience and oh my goodness i want to tell everyone I kept telling them about all the different parts. And, you know, I went to, um, I went, I talked to God. I went, I might have said heaven a few times at first, but I, when I got out of, and I said, no, I'm not going to do that because I wanted to be more scientific. But I was trying to tell them about Jesus and this, this beautiful place that I went to. And the doctor had told my family that I was having a psychotic break that I was just hallucinating and I was um, in danger of being stuck there. They would be a subject or, and finally, after a couple of weeks, he came and he sat in my bed one night and he started poking me in the shoulder. And he said, if you tell, talk about this one more time, I'm going to put you in a psychiatric hospital 
and pump you up with so many drugs, you won't know if it's day or night. Mm, wow. So by the time he finished that, I had rolled away from him. I was laying in my bed and I was sobbing because he could have. And I have to say that's one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had because no one would listen to me. They all listened to him. And there was a nurse in the room and she was leaving when he came in, but she stayed behind and fidgeted with things until he did his little tirade and walked out. And um, she came over and she was rubbing my back because I was just laying there just hysterically sobbing because I was so terrified that he was going to do that to me. And I wouldn't know if it was day or night. That was horrifying to me. And she started to tell me, I was um, in the, uh, I had gone in and out of ICU a bit. And she was a nurse that worked in the hospital and in the ICU. And she said, I've heard this before. A few times people have talked about going to a place with gardens and angels and their family was there, etc. And she said, um, I've heard this before. And that, you know, it's like a little mini miracle because she brought me back from this horrific fear that I was feeling. And the next night she came in with another nurse and they sat down. We only talked about 10 minutes. But I told them a little bit about the experience and they hugged me and they left. But I would see her from time to time and she would just smile at me and I would just know that she believed me and that she had other people had had the same experience. That was so important to me then. After that, um, now this was 1988. I didn't know who Raymond Moody was. And it took a couple years for me to begin to, I had to go back to the ranch. I had to get my memory back. And that took about a year and a half to get all the little pieces that were missing. Um, one of the therapists I worked with afterwards explained to me, he said, you have to think of, you've got all your memories here, but I had really severe brain damage. I mean, the whole left side of my brain was in what they call subdural hematoma, a bruise. It went over into the right. I had air bubbles here all the way down my brain stem. And they're like, no, you, you know, she, that's why they thought I was going to die because they just looked at my CAT scan and they said, nobody recovers from this. And so um, when I was leaving the hospital, I thought I better have those because who knows when I get older, bad head injury might come back to haunt me. So I went and asked for them and they sent me down to the radiology department. So I went down there and they were shorthanded. So the lady kept waiting for someone to come and she handed them to me. She's just go down in the basement, tell them you want a copy of these, and then bring these back. So I sat down in the basement for over an hour and a half because there's a line, and everybody who's coming for someone upstairs jumps over me because I'm, I'm you know, which I didn't mind because the, they're working with life and death, and I just wanted a copy. So finally, I thought, you know what? I'm leaving. So I just took them and walked out. I figured I need them more than you need them, and you're just going to throw them away in a few years. And I really need a copy. And so that was the last day when I was leaving um, the hospital. And um, it was just very difficult. But it was interesting because right then the vet leaves, our vet with 120 horses retires. 
and a new lady comes in and she's like Mystic Meg. I mean, she's spiritual. She starts introducing me to all these very spiritual people in Tucson. And another lady came out to the ranch to deliver something. And she and I started chatting. Uh, She makes these beautiful frames and she was delivering it to one of our employees. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I said to her, do you ride? Because I wanted to go back to riding and they wouldn't let me ride by myself. And she goes, yeah, I'd love to ride. And she's really good on a horse. So I said, let's go riding. So she became a really close friend. And she was so instrumental in giving me some amazing books and um, helping me understand this new intuition and the visions I was having and the dreams I was having. And um, she's still a dear friend all these years. But um, it was, I just, one person opens 20 doors for you. And I, like I said, I went to India. I would go and meditate. I like quiet, silent meditation. So I would go to India and I would be there like 12 hour days sometimes just opening up to my inner spirit because, you know, when someone has a near death experience, they're not automatically sainted. You know, we're not holy, holy people that come back like Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, I wasn't raised from the dead. I was sent back, you know, and um, it's, we had to learn to find that balance. I had to go inside and find my own spiritual pathway because I couldn't really find one that fit me. So I had to almost invent how I perceive God and how I perceive, you know, healing and love and, and right action, you know, Dharma or Dharma, um, what we're here for, because everybody's curriculum is different. So it was challenging. The first few years were very difficult. My marriage, which was, you know, very weak beforehand, fell apart and we got a divorce. Um, So I was raising two young children and Bob was a great father. So he and I had a lot of the kids went back and forth all the time so that neither one of us, you know, was missing them. Um, and they, we had, you know, but then I had to say, who am I? What, what do I want to be? You know, where do I go now? It was, I had to reinvent myself completely. So that was quite the journey. Did you even remember your neighbors and your friends? Um, my, yes. My memory is pretty much back now. I, mean, I did. I, oh no, I didn't remember anybody. Hmm. My mom would come in. This was so sweet. And she would come in and she had like, (laughs) she brought this like suitcase in with pictures of all the family pictures and all these little things. Like she had all my grade school report cards, you know, and she had all these papers I had written and just, she kept all these files. She had six children. So she probably has 20 suitcases, but she brought these suitcases down and she would sit there every day. And the doctor kept pushing her to push me. And she goes, do you remember this people? And I'd be looking at them, no, well, this is, you know, our neighbor, Sally. And I go, okay. And then the next day she'd show me the picture and I still hadn't remembered it. So, and I was really resisting being force fed all these facts about things that I had no idea what they were. And I, you know, uh, they'd bring... It was just, it was a mess. So finally, my mom, 
um, finally got spunky because that doctor was really pushing us and pushing her to push me. And so she knew I loved um, like English murder mysteries. So she went out and she got a couple Agatha Christie books and she just sat down and started reading them to me. And that calmed me down more than her trying to force me. Now, this is important kind of thing. And she just finally said, go away and leave us alone. I'm going to let her do it at her own pace. And that was right. And she came about, I was in the hospital a couple months and she came down two or three weeks before I left and she came every day. And then when I went back, instead of going into my house, I went into one of the guest rooms at the ranch and she would cook and bring my kids to visit. And finally, after a few days, my daughter had like a meltdown and started because she was taking them away from me. And I said to her mom, this isn't working. So I picked up my kids and I followed her back to my house and I climbed in my bed and they just climbed in with me. And after that, it was peace, you know, because they were so traumatized. Mom's gone for a couple months. I go down, I'm going to help unsaddle the horses and I disappear for two months. My son was one and my daughter was three. And um, that was very traumatic for them. So still today, are you managing any after effects from this? Um, you know, I think that, well, <laughs> I've passed the PTSD test three times. So I know that I still have some shock about that. And I think a, a good way of saying it is almost like if you think of a house of cards, that I think that people that die and come back are fragile in a way that most people aren't. Um, for example, I can't watch like violence movies. I can't even watch barely a PG movie. And not that I was a horror monger, violent, you know, movie person ever. I never really liked them, but now I can't watch them. Hmm. Um, and I'm not, I don't miss them either, Hmm. but it's, I think that, um, I do tend to be a little shyer than I normally was. And I do tend to be a little skittish about big groups of people like malls. I would go to a mall and I, it would almost like you could just shut something down and walk through a mall and not be bothered. And, be, be, you know, before COVID, if I went into a mall, I would try to go like when it first opened so that there weren't a lot of people there if I had to go into a mall for something. So I'm not really big on huge crowds. and But I'm not a loner either. I mean, I have really good, lovely friends, and I have a really good support group. But yeah, I think you, I think anything that's traumatizing, though, I think anyone who might have lost a child is in that same boat. They're just, there's a fragility when you die and you, you come back. One thing that you mentioned, and, and I want to kind of go back to, is that you saw, I believe you said you saw Saraswati while you were in heaven. And my guess is that's a Hindu god or goddess. And Oh, you, I'm sorry, yes. And she is, you She's said she, you said that she was twice as tall as you are. And aren't mm-hmm. a lot of the Hindu gods like blue in color? So was she blue in color or still human color? No, she wasn't. But she had this beautiful purple, like, uh, dress on. 
And um, she was very, very tall. And um, she's the goddess of knowledge. Hmm. So what I was in was the hall of knowledge. You know, this is the um, place where all the information is. It's like the Akashic records that people talk about. That's where I was. And she was there. And she was like, that makes sense. Because, again, I didn't know who Saraswati is when I was upstairs, when I had to find her down here. Mm-hmm. And um, it was really educational because we just kind of talked about why I came up at that time and certain things that were going on in my life. And, um, you know, and she, she's and now I understand where when I was little, I used to love, I used to sit in libraries. Like I would have stayed for a week if you'd let me. Because that was my favorite place to go. I was a bookworm and a geek. You know, I loved science. I loved learning. I had my prized possession was a children's um, encyclopedia. It had orange child craft. It had an orange cover. And I, I read the whole thing. And then I even read my parents' encyclopedia. I just, I really love them because you open it up and there's something in bold print. So you get to research it more. And that was just so much fun for me. And they also... Saraswati said this was a favorite place of mine to come. You know, anything that's, um, it's like all information is there. And as we grow, like heaven grows, you know, and I think everything is kind of geared towards growth, Mm -hmm. Um, learning and bettering yourself and becoming more cooperative and loving. I mean, that's the trend is, is consciousness and being aware of, other people's feelings, you know, and things like that. I'm not sure of your height, so I'm guessing that Saraswati was still probably at least 10 feet tall while you were there. Yeah, I'm 5'6". Yeah, so she's closer to so she was, But she tall. was really tall. Were there other yeah, beings? Yeah, she was really tall. Were there other beings there that looked non-human? No, I didn't see anybody that didn't look human. I didn't see any glasses. I didn't see a purse. Everyone looked like they were like 20 years old, except for their eyes. I've done this lecture down at the university. There's a PhD program of science, uh, spiritual psychology. And I've done a lecture there, and it's usually 20, 21-year-olds. And there's usually 80 to 90 kids in the class. And when I, afterwards, I'll stay for questions, and they all come up. And they all look like the people upstairs, except for they still have like baby eyes. When upstairs, when you would look in someone's eyes, it was like they're a million years old and they're cognizant of everything they experienced for that million years. Mm -hmm. And so it was this wisdom that was in their eyes in spite of the fact they look very, very, very young. I understand when you first came back that you were 14 and from Chicago, but when you were upstairs as well, you maybe saw yourself somehow in a mirror or something and you thought that you also had this 14-year-old appearance? No, actually, I never saw myself up there. However, um, all I could see was this. I could see my hands mm-hmm. and that's all I could see. And I could touch my hair and I touched my face and you know, I, I figured out what I looked like, but I never saw a mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a dream. I can't remember the timelines after I came back, I had a couple of dreams over a period of six or seven years where I'd be upstairs again, you know, in the dream. And I figured I'm back there visiting. I'm not dreaming it. 
And I said to them, what do I look like? And they looked at each other and they said, well, come over here. And they walked over and there was a mirror and I looked in the mirror and I had big curls and my chin was a little pointier, but I just looked like a college kid. Mm. Um, I, I didn't see anybody that looked inhuman. I saw birds and I saw butterflies and I saw fish. It looked like now, um, but I never saw anybody that had any type of um, like fingernail polish or, or things like that. Mm. The clothing, the colors were rich and beautiful. Everything was lit from within. So God, the divine, was not like the sun, but it was pulsing like the sun, like water. But everything was lit. It's like a little bit translucent, but I would touch things and they were solid. Yeah, and everything had this amazing iridescence to it. So it wasn't like a flat color. It had that, when you see oil on water and uh, it has that iridescent kind of rainbow look to it, Everything there had this real light feeling of um, the things, not the people, um, but the plants, the trees, everything was was lit like from within. Hmm. So there were no shadows anywhere. Hmm. That was always, always also strange to me. Yeah, that is interesting that there's no shadows. Yeah. All right. Well, let me switch gears on you here. Are you working on any projects that you want us to know about? Ah, well, actually, today uh, was my third attempt. I'm, I, I actually wrote a book about my near-death experience. Mm-hmm. And I used um, the last sentence I heard was, remember, every breath is precious. And that's the title of the book. Um, I am now doing an audio of the book. So I, I'm recording it. So that's going to be a couple months before the audio book comes out. I also do, I've done for decades, um, let's see, I made probably 15 or 18 years, I've done a relationship workshop. And it has to do with people that um, there's certain group of people that kind of came down here to help break prejudices and the generational prejudice and elevate forgiveness. And a lot of times they feel very isolated from their family or their culture or their community. And um, so I've done a relationship workshop for people. There's a whole group of people that they call empaths or highly sensitive people. And they give and they don't receive. And they, they are selfless to a fault. And we need to be selfless, but not to a fault. And so I do a relationship workshop on that. And... Um, so I do a relationship workshop on that. And it's, it's, it's how do I have boundaries with my family or, or situations? How much is too much that we have to put up with? Where do I have boundaries? Because we want to be unconditionally loving, but unconditional love doesn't include the word vulnerability in it. I mean, you would never take Charlie Manson home for the weekend because it's his birthday and they're letting him out of prison for the weekend. Can he come visit you? No, because then I'm vulnerable, but I can unconditionally love him um, and not throw him into the Coliseum with the gladiators. Mm. 
So we're evolving and we just need to have include self-love in our love because a lot of people are unconditional loving towards everyone but themselves. And that's what Jesus and I had talked about was the self-forgiveness and just you can love everybody from a safe distance, but when you're allowing someone close to you, then you have to have some gentle, gentle boundaries, you know, without judgment, just discernment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do an exercise and it's called peer or patient. And that's up on my webpage about having these boundaries and how to be unconditionally loving, but with these very gentle, non-judgmental boundaries, because we don't want to go back into judging people. Now that you mentioned your web page, what is your website? It's www.lesliejoanluco.com. But don't listen to spell check. It's L-E-S-L-E-Y, Joan Lupo, like one word, uh, dot com, L-U-P-O. So um, everybody writes me L-E-S-L-I-E and I never get it. And spell check keeps trying to get me to force me to you and I no, put my name in there. L-E-S-L-E-Y, Joan Lupo. Are you a private person or do you interact with people in social media? No, I'm all over social media and I do, I do react. Act. When people post questions, I like to answer them. So yeah, I'm. I don't have someone doing it for me. Mm-hmm. I am private, though. I mean, I um, I like I like to give people privacy, and I like my own privacy. But um, and I'm really good at saying to someone that's questions not going to be answered. You know, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes they want to get into your personal life, or you know. Uh, what happened in your marriage and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, that's got nothing to do with anything. Next question. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do interact a lot on social media. Okay, great. All right. Well, before we wrap it up here, do you have one last message that you can share with us? I think one of the most important things I realized when I was upstairs that I brought back with me was the consciousness that the world is a one-room schoolroom. And that everyone has a different curriculum. And that within your birth family, extending outward from that, you have all sorts of different um, levels. So you can walk into a room and you can be talking to a, a CEO Fortune 500 person. And they're in second grade and the person bringing you your water, the busboy is a PhD. It, the, what's important upstairs And what's revered upstairs is not necessarily what people pay a lot of attention to down here. But if the world is a one-room schoolroom, and let's say you have someone you know that just can't get out of their rut, there's a beautiful saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So if you're giving a friend or family member or romantic interest some advice and they don't take it, I always say give it a couple tries and then begin to put them in a place where you can pray for them to have the answers come to them, but you're not their teacher and you're not they're not ready. Because a lot of times older souls think everyone is just like me and why do you keep going back to the man that's beating you kind of thing? And they're just they have to learn that lesson. 
So it's like trying to teach physics to a second grader. It's good to find your own level of spiritual maturity and emotional maturity as your intimate friends and then unconditionally love everyone else. That's good. Thank you for that message. And thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time today. My pleasure. All right. Well, thank you and have a great evening. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.